everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Entrepreneurs Rx. My name is John Schiefel. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of chatting with Oren Aloni Cheris. He is an MD, MBA. He is the co founder and managing director of Cura Capital, which is a health tech uh, VC fund, anesthesiologist by training. He's done all sorts of things that we'll get to hear about. Oren, welcome to it. Thank you. It's great to be here, John. Appreciate hey, it. Th thanks for taking the time. Okay, you've got a really cool background, and people are going to want to know like how you did years of anesthesiology, and then you morphed into a whole new line. Give us a little background of your kind of pre-med and medical school yeah, so it is It is a, a little unusual. i originally from New York. I live in San Francisco now, but I went to Penn undergrad, did my pre-med there, University of Pennsylvania, and then went to NYU School of Medicine in New York City, and then did my training in anesthesia at Mount Sinai Hospital. So it was interesting. The trend at that time was that people started to get MBAs, sometimes during their residency. So there was already this idea that this might be something valuable, but people couldn't really articulate why they were doing it. And most people who were doing it were doing it, but fully expected to continue practicing medicine and maybe get into an administrative position. There was a subset of people that were planning on completely leaving medicine and then leveraging their degree differently that I, that I was aware of. So I got out of residency and started practicing. And for me, the epiphany was that as an anesthesiologist, and I thought I was great, you know, I'm sure like everybody does, but I realized that if I didn't come to work one day that they would find somebody else and the job would get done and they would probably be great too. And, you know, so even though on a one-to-one -one basis, every person I took care of received this, you know, what I considered, you know, quality care, it, it really wasn't moving the needle right? Because if I didn't show up, somebody else would do it and probably also do it well. So I wanted to do more. I wanted to have more impact. I wanted to be less of a commodity. And so I recognized that in the business world, you know, there were a lot of lessons that were learned that we really didn't bring into medicine. So I said, well, I'm going to get my MBA. I was in New York. I applied and got into the Columbia University program and got my MBA. And that was a real education. And when I was there, I'd had some exposure to some venture capitalists, including one who I met through his daughter, who was an early investor in Apple. So I really got this great view of what venture was and its role, right, which is a driver of innovation, which is a driver of GDP, which is really critical, you know, to our economy. And I said, well, that's, that's really interesting. I never looked at it that way. So I, in my spare time, I started to work with some venture capital people in New York City to learn more about the business. And really enjoyed it. You know, there was this great imagination and, and creation happening there. So fast forward, I finished the degree, moved to San Francisco, worked in my practice where I, you know, became a member of the board, the CFO, got to use my business degree. But in business school parlance, it was kind of a failure because I wasn't monetizing it. But I wanted to do venture. And I figured I was in San Francisco and this is sort of the heartland of venture capital. There's got to be a way, but it was very difficult as a full-time practicing physician to do that. And of course, you know, I had, you know, debts and a young family. There's no way I could walk away and go, you know, be a, an errand boy for a venture firm. That didn't make any sense, you know? So ultimately 
I found a startup that was working in the venture space in healthcare called Angel MD, and they were looking to grow. They were a very early company, and they needed somebody with my skills and my clinical understanding. And so it became a really great stepping stone into the venture world. So that that was kind of my path, really unusual, but that's how I got there. All right. Let's so okay. Let, let me back up a little bit. So, what was your undergrad degree in Penn? And the reason I'm asking it will be clear in a second. Basket weaving. No, I'm kidding. Just biology. Biology okay. with a minor in psychology. Okay. So you were you were typical. So I was sociology, yeah. criminology. So you didn't cool. do finance, business, that sort of thing. No, I guess my only exposure really to business was my dad was an entrepreneur, businessman. You know, had a marketing firm, and so it's a little bit in my blood. And I grew up watching him run his business. So, you know, I always had some entrepreneurship in my blood, but no, medicine was my goal. Yeah. You got your education at the dinner table in, in, in many respects. How right. long after, so I, you know, I, I did and still do emergency medicine, which is very similar to anesthesiology in a sense. It's, right. it's shift work. How long after you started, did you realize that you guys, when I say you, you guys, I mean, anesthesiology and EM the same way, you've kind of commoditized yourself. And you, obviously we don't do it to ourselves, but the, like you said, at the end of the day, if I'm not there, someone else's. Yeah, it was pretty early on, actually. You know, when, I mean, I was out of residency. So now your head's in the game of being a practitioner, getting paid. What does this mean? And, you know, some of my observations were that people with fellowship training seem to have leverage over people who weren't. People in New York City at the time, at least, because this was late 1990s, who were doing research were elevated over people who were doing just clinical work. There was like, you know, it's like a second class citizenship. And, you know, maybe a lot of that had to do with, you know, the politics of the, of the environment at the time, but, but really it was very clear at the time that I was a worker bee. And, you know, as brilliant as a doctor might think he or she is at the end of the day, if you feel like a worker bee, that's not really the, you don't go to medical school, do all of that work to be a drone. You do it to save lives and to help people. And I don't know, it just felt like, it felt unsafe. It felt unsafe. It felt like a lot of people had levers that they could pull that would affect my life. And I wanted to strengthen the ability to push back against that. Yeah. Or, or maybe not even that, but maybe just have a fallable, you know, the plan B and C, you know, I realized that if I wasn't working, I wasn't making money. And then, and I had seen a couple of people I was in residency with get hurt or sick. And, you know, we, we're all one trick ponies. And so, yeah, we could go work on an urgent care maybe, but a lot of them, you know, they got frozen shoulder, or they had something where they couldn't walk or they couldn't innovate anybody if they had to. And they were kind of like, crap, now what do I do? So, yeah, I totally, you know, that, I guess that's a lever. You know, somebody else pulls a lever and you're kind of out of luck. Well, and that's actually more more appropriate than you realize because in 2017, I got a medical diagnosis that forced me ultimately to retire from medicine. So fine, I'm healthy, I can, I can do lots of things, but that was not going to work out anymore. And so fortunately, because I've been doing all of this other work um, and I have that experience, I can do all of this. It's, it was never really a plan B, it was a plan, more of a plan adjacent, but yeah. it became plan A. Anyway, I mean, it's a, it's a great way. And what I'm, you know, what I hope this podcast does is it's allows physician to think, you know, I was an undergrad bio psych major, and yet I can hedge my, take my education, hedge it and do entrepreneurial things, you know, much like you've done. <clears throat> when did you, how long 
were you in anesthesia attending before you went back and got your MBA? And what did your partners think of that? So I was in my first, my second private practice job, my first non-academic job. It was within two years, three years of residency. So it was pretty quick. You know, when I, and part of that was I had to apply, take the GMAT, what is it? Not the the GMAT and apply to the school and get into the program right in the proper timing. So it was pretty quick, you know, and also you're young. I didn't have kids. I didn't have debt. You know, that's the time when you can really flex and do things like that. As you know, especially if you, if you have a family, as you get older, right, you want to devote time and assets to that. So you become less, less limber in your career. Totally. And I didn't, you know, I see a lot of MDJD programs right now and a lot of MD MBA programs. I, I wasn't quite that smart. I don't think they had them back then. But so I, you know, I was a couple years, three years out of residency, I think, when I went back and got an MBA. Okay. So, you, you know, just to, just on that point, I don't know the programs themselves. I haven't really talked to people who've gone through them, but I would say that I really like my approach because when I was a doctor and learning about medicine, I learned about medicine. I wasn't distracted by tort, you know, you know, all contracts. And, and then when I was going to business school, I was really interested in being there and learning it. And I didn't have the pressures of learning how to intubate or put in a central line or what have you. So I don't know if doing them at the same time is it's efficient. I don't know if it's as valuable. Well, and they're usually one-year programs. So the MDJD is a two-year program, and then you're, the third year is kind of a research paper, and MD, MBA is one year, and I'm familiar with a couple of them because I'm involved with them. But I, I agree with you. I don't think you get the immersion that you really need to get the most out of it. I think you get the letters and some education, but not truly the experience. And my two cents. Okay, so you go to San Francisco. You're practicing there for... 10 years, 13 years? 20, 20 years. Oh, 20 years in San Francisco. Wow. Okay. So then you have some yeah. executive roles there. And mm-hmm. then when you when you left your anesthesia practice, you went to Angel MD? No, no, no. I was doing them simultaneously. So Angel MD was like a side hustle. Okay. Something All that right. I could do in my free time. All right. And and then I worked there and I worked at Red Crow. And then... Well, what's um, Red Crow? It's also... a, a It was a network that aggregated. It was more focused on the startups and marketing the startups, but it was a network to help startup healthcare raise their profile and, you know, hopefully attract investors. And I got to work with the Cleveland Clinic. I got to film the show with NASDAQ. I got to work with the AMA on their innovation network um, online effort. So yeah, I've had a lot of really interesting experiences that then brought me to my fund, my first fund, which I ran for a while and now have left to join, uh, to run a larger institutional fund called Cure Capital. So let's talk about Cure Capital. What is, I noticed a bunch of similarities with what we're doing, which is exciting. Yeah. What are you, tell, tell us about Cure Capital. What's, it, uh, what's its uh, goals? So the thesis, the investment thesis is that we're a uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley-based venture fund. Uh, we're hoping to raise in our first fund $15 million to invest in seed and series A uh, US-based digital health and med tech companies. The space, and I'm not surprised you're in the space, that seed and series A space is a really, really interesting space. You know, on the downside, it takes a longer time for companies to exit in that space. Right. And so they're riskier. And even the time to money when they're successful is long. On the other hand, those are times in the life cycle of those companies where people like us can provide tremendous value 
and access to doctors, access to people who understand business in the health tech and, and med tech space, it's really, it's really hard for them to get. So we really can provide, you know, strategic money to companies at that stage. And I think that's really important. And more importantly, you know, we have insights. I have insights that allow me to pick winners and losers, I think, with a much higher degree of certainty than most other people. What do you, so this will be interesting when, when you say that, and for folks that are listening that are interested in looking at venture capital that have a startup idea, what are you looking for in these founders? So what am I looking for in the founders? Well, so an ideal founder is going to have experience. They're going to know how to run a company. They're going to, so there are three risks I look at when I look at companies. I look at their clinical risk. I look at their risk as a business itself. And I look at their finance or capital risk, right? Most of the companies I invest in are going to go through the FDA for clearance. And so they're going to, there's going to be a long period of time where they're typically going to not have revenue. If they don't have revenue, the only way they can sustain their business is through grants and investment. So grants are great, but they're hard to get. They're going to be capped and they take a long time to realize. So really what you're looking at is the private markets to support those companies. So if you can't raise money, you're done. It doesn't matter how good your company is. So, so they, the financial risk is real. The clinical risk is real. I'm sure you've seen lots of companies that present to you and you look at them and you say, this just doesn't make any sense. Or I've seen a hundred companies doing the same exact thing or whatever. Right. And so I have a pyramid in my mind. It's, it's really not sophisticated, but the first thing I do is look at what they're doing clinically and see a, if I think it's viable and B, if I think that if it excites me, you know, you're going to really get into bed with these companies. One of the things people don't know much about venture if they haven't studied it is that we look at a thousand companies for each one we invest in. So you know, really the answer is no until it's yes, rather than yes until it's no. And so you want to be excited. You want to be excited about what those companies are doing. Once you've cleared that barrier, once they've sort of gotten through those filters that I established, then the question is, do you want to work with these people? Are they trustworthy? Do they have experience? Do they have credentials? You know, do they check the boxes that they need to check in order to be successful? So we see a lot of first-time founders in healthcare. Uh, you know, often they're academics. Uh, so that's not necessarily a non-starter, but it is better when somebody's already done it, when they're a seasoned and experienced entrepreneur. There was a study, I think, out of Stanford recently that showed that the be best indicator of success in a startup founder is previous failure, right? which is counterintuitive, but it just shows you that there are lessons to learn, right? N nobody can intubate somebody probably having never intubated somebody before. Yeah, totally true. So it was interesting. I was talking to a gentleman last week and you know, I've always had this mindset of you need to be all in. And so like all these different businesses I've started, I was never all in. I always practiced emergency medicine. I always had my 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 backstop. And and he had literally walked out of medical school, never looked back, started a really cool company. And when I and I said, Wow, you really burned the ships on this one. And he said, Well, actually, yes. But the studies are that people who don't do that, who have this other source of income, do better. And he pointed me to this book by Adam Grant called The Originals. And sure enough, there's a study that said 
for these entrepreneurial founders, the ones that keep their day jobs, so to speak, for longer have a much better chance of success. And they gave all sorts of examples, probably the most notable, of which was uh, Wozniak, who continued to work for another two years after Apple was founded. And then they talked about Susan Blakely from Spanx and all these people who that never quit their J jobs until their company was pretty successful along the way. What, what's your sense of that? My sense of that is that it's not uncommon, particularly in companies coming out of academic institutions, that people don't want to give up their day job. The question is, is there is there value added? And of course, for everyone, the value added is that it takes economic pressures off of the founders. Right. right? That's a big, that, that that's a big a deal. Sense. Right. The mental health impact of founding a company and having no money and not being able to feed your kids, right? That's huge. And it's not going to help you succeed. So the other question is, you know, is there clinical career an advantage to the company? And in healthcare, I would argue many times it is, right? Having having yourself immersed in that environment keeps you, you know, and that's why when I was at Angel MD, I was actually glad to be a working anesthesiologist. Hey, today I'm looking at an ENT company and I happen to be doing tonsils. Let me talk to my colleague. Today I'm doing something in, that, you know, relates to neurointervention and you know, cerebral aneurysms. Let me talk to the guy who's doing this, you know, this stroke case that I'm on right now. So I think there are advantages, but there's no question that at some point, the founders have to be all in, they have to be committed. And I think that point is going to be at the point when you're taking maybe not the first institutional money, if you're taking small money from people like us, but certainly when you're going further out, you as the founder have to decide, am I the leader of this company? Or am I chief medical officer or chief medical officer adjacent. And we have to bring somebody else on who's committed. Right. Yeah. Am I an advisor, consultant, or am I, am I all in? But I, thought, right. I always found it interesting. That I, and I always put that as like a mark against myself when I, I you know, I haven't been all in. And uh, then I, I, I recently finished the originals, the book I mentioned. I'm like, okay, maybe it wasn't so bad. Maybe I actually set myself up for some success as opposed to burning the ships. I think so. I mean, I, you know, John, I gotta be honest. I think that what I like to do is look at, again, I have these very simple mental frameworks and I look at the boxes that have to get checked. And if you're able to do what you need to do and meet your milestones and make your commitment and maintain your mental health, to me, it's a value add that you can pay your bills and you're not, you know, you're not hungry. If you can't, then we have a problem. And whether that means because you have another job or who knows what, you know, that's a problem. So, so what advice would you have? Because you know, I noticed this even before COVID, but I definitely notice it now. There's a lot of our colleagues that are like, yeah, this medicine thing was great. And I love, you know, I love practicing medicine. I love taking care of people, but it's not the end all and be all. I want to do something else. or I want to at least have the opportunity to do something else. What advice would you give them? Well, I think everybody's different. So you have to ask yourself why and what you're looking for. Everything ultimately is a job, right? Great painters, great writers, they sit down and they grind it out every day and it sucks, right? But they make great work. And I think probably the same is true for doctors, for lawyers, right? I mean, the, the grind is the grind, waking up at five, you know, five o'clock in the morning every day to get to work before the sun comes up is terrible, but you're doing really important work. So don't minimize what you're doing and don't think that the grass is like all yeah, you know, super green champagne and caviar on the other side. That being so, so I think the first thing is evaluate your reasons. But if you can sustain it financially, or you're okay taking the financial hit, whatever, 
and you're really not happy in medicine, you shouldn't be there and find something else. But I think it's important to not just know why you're leaving something, but know why you're going to something and, and go for it thoughtfully. I was, and I'm not sure <clears throat> people are that unhappy in medicine. I mean, even, even today, even my EM colleagues, and we kind of, you know, got a little bit of, uh, we got a little beat up during the worst of COVID. Yeah. Um, some a lot more than others. And I consider myself pretty fortunate, you know, not to work some respects. I wish I was, wish I would have been there, but not to work in New York and Seattle on the real hotspots. Phoenix was bad enough, but I don't even think they want to necessarily leave medicine or they don't like it. They just want they want to hedge. And I've always thought that right. what kept me from getting burned out in medicine was being able to have these other opportunities to use my creative, you know, my be creative and use my what what mild intellect I have to do other things. Do you sense that? Do you sense that this is a good hedge against burnout? I do. And I think that that's the point I, I probably should have made before, which is that what I've observed is that doctors in general, are lifelong learners. You know, think about it. How old are you when you're finished with your residency? 30 years old, right? So you've spent the first 30 years of your life constantly taking in information and more and more information as those years escalate. And even in the beginning of your practice, right? You're not, you, it takes like what, four or five years to get to a, a, this steady state in your career as a physician, right? And even then you're still gonna learn, but the pace changes. And I think one of the things that happens is we get intellectually stagnant, you know, it becomes a grind and that's great because it lets us practice. It lets us, you know, build a career, lets us maybe focus on things like administration, but we are not stimulated in the way that we had been for years and years and years and the way we have, you know, adapted our bodies and our brains. So I think finding something in your world, whether it's being a painter, whether it's volunteering whether it's becoming a venture capitalist or advising a startup, that having something that stimulates you and excites you is a really good way to stay in the game or, or, or transition to something else. So I agree with you 100%. For me, it was venture, but I don't know that venture is magic over something else. Right. No, totally true. You know, I think physicians, <laughs> and I know you've heard this, physicians make bad business people. And I always argue the always argue the opposite. The physicians make great entrepreneurs because if you just look at our training and our resilience and grit, I mean, nobody ever goes back and says, "Oh yeah, medical school was a easy undergrad was a blast." I mean, we all go back and go, "Had a great time," but it you know when people are out partying on Friday, we're kind of grinding it out a lot of weekends, and so none of us lack on resilience or grit or creativity or tenacity, which are kind of the core building blocks for entrepreneurism. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you 100%, but I'll make one exception. But like, I like to use the analogy of anesthesia, which is you're sitting in the operating room, you put a patient to sleep, their blood pressure drops, you know, and there's this cycle of observation, diagnosis, action, observation of the response to the action, and then it cycles through, right? So in medicine, you're, you're constantly assessing your environment, you're constantly pivoting, you're very limber, you have to be, you know, because obviously, there's a lot on the line. And I think that works really well in business, particularly in the early stage where, you know, things come at you, you don't know what they're going to be, you want to be innovative. But sometimes innovation leads you down the wrong path. So I think that doctors have the mental and the emotional fortitude to be good business people. The problem I think that doctors get into is that they also have arrogance or can have arrogance. 
And business is different. Just because you're a good doctor doesn't mean you're going to be a good business person. You know, you've got to learn things. There are ways that, you know, there are just different processes involved. And if you don't learn them, if you don't take the time, then you're not going to do well. And the other thing is that, you know, as a doctor, we start up, we're like, you know, in the operating room, I was a CEO, right? I'm making the decisions. I'm not waiting for permission. You know, these big, big, important decisions that sometimes, you know, saved or jeopardized somebody's life, usually save. <laughs> but, but, you know, when you work in a business organization, especially when you come in lower, you're not the CEO, you're not the boss. And you have to learn you know, what those things are to make good decisions. So you have to, you have to set the ego aside a little bit to become a business person. Yeah, totally. It's, you know, if you have a degree of humility, you're open to learning and making mistakes and, and, and not being risk averse. I, I've noticed that as well. And, you know, I was the famous Mike Tyson quote, you know, if you're not, don't have humility, the world will visit humility upon you. And I, I think we all learn it one way or another, whether we're, we were started out that way or we were like Mike Tyson forced and in, forced into it or this or, or be, maybe a little bit of both. Right? Yeah, a little bit of both. So Warren, where can people learn more about you and about Cura? So uh, we, we do have a website which has some media on it, uh, curacapital.co. So welcome to see me there. You can also send me an email at Oren at curacapital.co. You can find me on LinkedIn and connect with me and reach out to me if you want to chat or have questions if you're interested in being a part of a venture fund. You know, the other thing I'll just add is that, you know, what I like to do is build networks of physicians that can support the venture fund. You know, again, getting back to this knowledge uh, that, you know, my knowledge is limited, right? I want to bring in as many experts as I can to look at things and to support things because I think that having that seat at the table with our tribe really can be transformative in innovation in medicine. Yeah, I totally agree. And we'll have everything in the show notes. So thank you very much for being on, being on this. It's been a huge educational. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.